0: Well, it's good to see everybody here today. I'm excited today. And uh, I'm excited about something I saw this morning on the way in here uh, for the past month and a half. We have had a mama duck camped right by our front step. There's only a one square foot uh, space between our step and the fence and the patio and the plants. And we pass by her every day. and. Uh, we, she'd been there incubating her eggs, and uh when one day when she was gone i counted I could count thirteen of them so uh was we were leaving, so we walked by every day and we say Hi, mama duck and uh we she doesn't pay us any attention and today we came out and she was gone, and we noticed that a couple of the egg shells were broken, and we're like, "Did they hatch or did something get them, or what and uh I said. The only price of rent we're charging is we want to see the ducks, the ducklings. So we got in our car and we're driving, and sure enough, we saw them. They had just left, and they were just a uh, half a block down our street, and the mama and we counted 12 of the ducklings wow. walking down the street. And they actually went across the crosswalk. <laughs> it's the funniest, craziest thing. <laughs> so we, we counted 12 of them. Yes, yes, and uh, that's because uh, God is into new life, new life. He's incubating new life all over the world, and new life happens. It's all God's work, and that's why we're here today, too, new life. We have new life, and if you're still being incubated, you can hatch. <laughs> There's new life for you. Uh, before we start this morning, I have a public service announcement from our Pastors and elders. So, uh, just like uh, the, the praise team practices every week so they can get better and learn the material, and they do a great job. Well, we had the bright idea that uh, we would like to open up a, uh, a feedback loop for the preaching because this is very important. It's not the only thing that, that is important here, much is, but this is also very important, and we want to, to um, get feedback. On how things are going, the content and the delivery and all that, because this is this is the book we come to learn from, and and we all want to learn from it, and we want to do well in learning that. So, uh, for the presenters right now, we're using a, a sermon evaluation form form. Uh, so I'm the first guinea pig since it's my bright idea. But also in the back, we've had a, a sermon note sheet. Uh, People use it to take notes, but it's also a two-way communication thing. It's open-ended. Uh, if you have questions, like uh, you know, good points, preacher, but uh, what was the point? Or you know, or you know, you have some really annoying speaking habits. Or I have a question about this. Or maybe you could talk more about that. So it's a, a, a feedback tool, and we want to develop a culture. A feedback uh, that's not just a presenter spitting stuff out but uh, so that we can have a dialogue. so we're all in here. this is the church's responsibility is presenting the good message. So uh, so use those and uh, you can um, leave them on the back table anytime you like. okay public service announcement brought to you by the leadership team. Thank you. Okay, so uh, who here remembers the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 51? I was a little distracted. We had this guy in town, Nebuchadnezzar. But I remember we had a big thing here. We had the Super Bowl, uh, the the soup. Does anybody remember what the outcome was? (laughs) All right, how many super diehard football fans do we have here? We only have a couple. Okay. Because I'm not a super uh, diehard football fan myself. I've actually seen more football since I've been married to Michelle (laughs) than I have in my entire life. Because she's into it, and so is Matt. And uh, So I'm learning a lot. I've always enjoyed watching it, but I don't don't follow it. It's not my thing. But uh, uh, the Patriots won. Anybody remember who the... MVP was? Yeah, Tom Brady. All right, does anybody know who sung the national anthem? Luke Bryant or Brian? Yes. And uh, who did the halftime show? Okay. Did anybody here watch just for the halftime show or the commercials? Okay. All right. Well, you're not alone because I Googled this, and apparently... There was 111 million people to watch the game, but when that halftime show came on, it was 117 million, so it was like 6 million more joined just to watch the show, because they're not into the football, but they wanted to see the show. It's a big, special production, and uh, so the game itself had a lot of record-breaking in it, and it seems like every halftime show, they always try to outdo each other, and uh, this time we were treated to a lady jumping through the roof, coming down on a, on a, a wire, and all kinds of dancing and loud singing and, and pyrotechnics and light shows, and it's an extravaganza. And they rehearse for months, I'm sure, to get this all just right, all for a couple-minute uh, program. Well, we're going to look at a text today in Acts And i got to tell you, it's kind of weird. It's crazy, the thing that happens in this text. Um, But outlandish phenomena and displays are not foreign to our culture. Super Bowl, the halftime show. And we go all out when there's a big event. We want to pump it up and celebrate. Uh, I got home from work yesterday a couple minutes before the Preakness came on. So I plopped on the couch and uh, I watched watched the horse race. And all of that for a two-minute race. And there were like 140,000 people downtown and there's big money in training these horses and sponsoring them and the betting. And it is a big, big deal for two minutes. So we're, we're not uh, unacquainted with a big (laughs) preparation and celebration for seemingly small things in the grand scheme of things. Well, this is the story. uh, We're going to continue on with what happened from last week. Uh, Pastor Ken preached and told us a story about uh, when the Holy Spirit came on the new believers. It was a small crowd, about 120 people. They were gathered together um, in their upper room Now, I'm going to set up a scene for you. So this is only 51 days past when Jesus was crucified. The last big festival in Jerusalem was the Passover. People were uh, in town from all over the world. People would make the big pilgrimage, and they would come. And if not every year, this might be a a once-in-a-lifetime trip. And so at the last big festival... There's a big buzz, a big hubbub, and a big disturbance, and Jesus was arrested, and crucified, and it was on public display, and people saw Jesus hanging there as they made their way to Jerusalem, and this was the the stamp of the Roman occupation, and but also the the uh, elders and the The people who ran the temple, they were in collusion with the Romans, and they demanded for this to be done. And so Jesus was crucified. And then they buried him. And then, praise God, he rose again. And uh, his disciples were witnesses to that. And he began to meet with them on several occasions over the next 40 days before he ascended into heaven and uh, gave them many convincing proofs of his being alive. But not everybody knew about this yet, and it was their job to be witnesses to his resurrection. So for a lot of people, the last thing they knew was Jesus was crucified. And maybe they heard stories, rumors that uh, Jesus rose again. But they knew that he was the great prophet, the great teacher, and they hadn't seen anything like this in their lifetime. And many of these people had heard him speak in the temple. Many of these people had seen Jesus perform miracles. And so now here we come to Pentecost. It's the next big festival. And people arrive. Some of the people probably stayed over if they traveled from a real long distance. But the others that were closer would travel back in. And now... Here it is, Pentecost, the, the Festival of Weeks, or the, the early harvest celebration. That was the official biblical reason that they would get there or go there. Um, the other unofficial reason was they, they uh, also celebrated the, uh, the giving of God's commandments, the giving of the law, the Torah, to Moses on Mount Sinai. So it was a all-in-one kind of big celebration. We got the law, the Torah, and that was what held their people together as a cohesive unit for all these years. And so they would come there and they would celebrate the harvest and the giving of the law, God's word to our community. So uh, how's it going to be this festival? You know, are we going to have any disruptions? I mean, w- what worse could possibly happen? maybe things will get back to normal now get back to the regular temple worship and you know this this whole Jesus thing this Jesus movement i mean that was it was amazing and we saw amazing things but it's done now what and there were other groups that were vying for attention and vying for change you had the, the zealots they wanted to overthrow rome by force. They were always recruiting and training and seeking out uh, weaknesses in the Roman occupation. So that's why they were always on guard, the Romans. And then you had other groups that uh, met out in the wilderness. You had the Essenes uh, in Comron. They had a community, a monastic community. And they had a teacher and out there that people followed. So you had all these groups and there's a lot of expectancy and turmoil in the culture. So people come to worship at the temple. And then something amazing happens. They hear this crazy rushing sound, like a tornado, a big wind, comes on Jerusalem and settles in this house, this upper room where these disciples are staying. And it says that the Holy Spirit came on these people, and that something else really wild happened. That these little uh, flickers of light came up over their head, like they call them, like tongues of fire. This is this is just totally outlandish. You can't make this stuff up. Now, you might think this is really crazy, and I have to admit this this doesn't happen in the natural world. But we see a lot of things that, if you brought those people from that time to here, they think. All the things that we do, that we engineer, they think those are miracles. <laughs> because we can do pyrotechnics, we can do uh, holograms, you can just hold your phone up over your head and do all kinds of displays. Okay? But they also did something else that was really crazy. Uh, they started praising God in other languages. So people were from all around the world. Uh, There's at least 15. Uh, nations or ethnic groups and language groups that are mentioned and they're praising God. These Galileans are praising God and telling his story in all these diverse languages. Now how do you pull that off? That's not a parlor trick. This is something very unusual. Very unusual. Now we could, today, you can speak into your phone and hit Google Translate and we we get it. So... It's possible that we can engineer that, but they didn't have that back in. So the people are like, "What? what is this? What does this mean? We got a big wind, this big disturbance. Uh, we see these flickering lights over these people's heads, and we hear them praising God in our language. I mean, they're not from our town. We don't know these people. How did they pull this off? I mean, I can't prepare for this one. So what does this mean? What does it mean? Well, some people said, eh, they're drunk. That's it. We got an easy explanation. They're drunk. Had a little bit too much wine, and they're just a little carried away. And you know, maybe they, I don't know, they're drunk. That's not a satisfactory explanation." But if you don't really care, maybe it is. Um, Don't miss God's working, God's spirit working in our midst with an easy explanation. Don't brush off important things with a no-good answer. Now, the spirit that came... It's kind of hard to explain. How do you explain that? The spirit of God coming and filling people. Well, maybe for you married people, you remember when uh, you proposed to your wife. And maybe for you women, when you received the proposal. There's a lot of anticipation up to that. You've fallen in love, and you found the one. And this is the person that you want to spend your life with. And... The lady is hoping that he will propose to me. And the man is hoping that she will say yes. And then the date comes. And however that transpires, the man proposes. Uh, I remember our proposal. I remember the date, too. March 19th. And uh, we took a walk up at Lock Raven. And I had etched in a tree... The spot where Chuck proposes to Michelle. I was right down by the water, and uh, I set this up ahead of time. So we took a walk, and uh, we were walking along, and I said, "Look, there's something over on that tree. Let's, let's go see what it says." And then she saw it, and that's when I pulled out the ring and pro- proposed to Michelle. And uh, I was going to get down on my on my knees and propose, but I was so excited I got all flustered and. Just stood there and asked her. (laughs) And she said yes. (laughs) And then everything changes. You have the commitment. You have the yes. And the, the relationship goes to a whole new level. It's different. And now you start to make the plan. This is the person who's in your life. Your hopes change, your expectations change, and you begin to dream of your life together. Well, that might be a rough way to think of the Spirit coming into our life. It's one of the things, you, you know it when you see it. Um, it's because there's a new person in your life. God comes and changes your life. He takes up residence in you. And you just find, just like a, a newly engaged couple, they find themselves daydreaming, about their soon-to-be spouse. They're thinking about them. They're just imagining. And this is how it is when the Spirit comes. We find ourselves thinking about God, thinking how he thinks. And he, he makes an impact in our life. It's not just us. He is in the equation. And, and he fills your life. And it's not just a one-time thing. This was a one-time event when when the Spirit came and this is when the church was born. Before this, they were the disciples. After this event, it's now the church. And a lot of people, after this event, uh, came and joined them. But we're, we're constantly filled. And it's a big outpouring. I tell you, there's nothing like being refreshed. Refreshed. It was a hot week this week, and I was out there, and uh, a couple people gave me water, and uh, sometimes you just cannot drink enough. Brenda knows. Yeah, Brenda knows. So you, you, just, you just keep drinking more. And sometimes you can surprise yourself how much you drink. I sweat profusely, but when it's really hot, sometimes you don't even sweat. It just evaporates right off your skin, and you you just keep drinking, and it's like, where does it go? Where does it go? But you just keep drinking and drinking, and you just can't get enough. Uh, and it's refreshing. And you just want to keep drinking more. Oops. It's just Water. But that's how God wants to fill us continuously. There's an outpouring of the Spirit. He wants to fill us up till we flow over. Now, when the people came, Peter stood up with the group and explained what was going on here. And this is the very first Christian message ever spoken by a disciple. I hope I can do it justice. So if you look in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 14, so all the people had gathered around to see what this phenomenon was. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No. No. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. That's what this is. They're not drunk. Don't get this wrong. This is not a fluky thing. This is the long-awaited outpouring of God's spirit among the people. But while he had their attention, Peter went on. I'm going to skip down to verse 22. He says, you know what? I'll tell you something. You also have something else very wrong, too. You got it wrong about what's happening here about the spirit of God. You also got it wrong about Jesus. He says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Some of the people in this crowd were those who cried out, crucify. I wonder if Peter recognized some of them. He may have. I'm going to tell you what Peter didn't say. Peter didn't say, Jesus died for your sins. Peter said, you sinful people crucified Jesus. That's what happened. God sent this man. You tell me some other person that God sent who is publicly endorsed by miracles (laughs) and signs and wonders. He was among us for three years. You saw what he did. He healed people. He fed crowds of poor people. He gave people hope. And he even raised the dead. He'd raised Lazarus just two months prior. That was the buzz before Jesus was crucified. So what did you guys do? This great man... Many considered a prophet. At the very least, he was a prophet. Many considered him a great teacher. Some had hoped that he was a messiah. God sent his best. And what did you do? You killed him. You killed God's best. Here's something else that's really weird in what Peter says. says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. That's really strange. And, uh, you know, sometimes we get accustomed to hearing Christian words and concepts. But this is shocking. Now, I guess you could say, all right, God knows all things, and you don't catch God by surprise, so he has foreknowledge. But it says that God handed him over to these people by his deliberate plan. What kind of plan is this? I mean, seriously, think about it. The message that we have on face value is really strange. What kind of plan is it for God to give his son for this? I can tell you without any doubt that if I had a choice between rescuing a world full of knuckleheads or keeping my family safe, my daughter safe, there's no question There's no contest. I would do everything to keep my children safe, to keep my family safe. I would sacrifice the world in a heartbeat. There's no contest. And this isn't just a new thing for God up to this point. He's been dealing with this wicked world throughout the generations. He sent prophets and prophets. And showed much grace, he worked with the people, he delivered them from Egypt, he disciplined them, he brought them back out of Babylon, resettled them in their land. Everything that he did only seemed to have temporary effect. And the world was just as bad as it ever had been. I was God, I'd say, well, I guess I can finally count this one off as a loss. Yeah, I mean, why am I putting myself through this trouble? There's a real lot of hassle, and it's a lot of pain. I don't need to be watching all this that they're doing down there. I don't need to be exposed to their evil and to their ignorance. This was a failed experiment. This is a bad idea. So I'm going to just be done with it. Any of us in God's position would have come to that conclusion. There's got to be something more to this deliberate plan of God. And I've thought about this a lot, and there's only one way that I can see that this even makes any sense at all. That is, if God can, despite man's evil, he can overcome it. And that's what God does. How he does it is still amazing and baffling. I mean, I can see God maybe sending his son leave heaven, leave the glory, and go on a goodwill ambassador tour. Give them a good lesson. Show them something good, and then we're out of there. But God sends his son to become one of us, to live among us, to make his stake on this earth. And he waters the world with his son's blood. God is not done with this world. He's not pulling up stakes. And he would not send his son to the treatment that we gave him for no reason or for little reason. So basically, what Peter is saying is is uh, this is kind of like God's halftime show. What you see and hear, this outpouring of the Spirit. Don't miss this. This is something big. God is switching up gears. He's pulling out all the punches, and we're we're moving toward the toward the finish line. And He intends to win. So he had an amazing display of power on the day of Pentecost. The tongues of fire, the the, the languages spoken by untrained people. And he's actually reversing the direction of his plan before the people would come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. But now, through this, he's preparing his disciples to be witnesses throughout the world. And speaking in the language of all the, the world's uh, Tongues, mother and uh, native languages. This was the proof that God is bringing Himself to the world. We're changing up here. So Peter tells us to the crowd you got it wrong about what's happening here. You've got it wrong about the coming of the Spirit. You've got it wrong about Jesus. You got it so wrong. You killed him. And you are guilty. Even though it was God's deliberate plan, you did it. And you did it with the help of worse people than yourself, with wicked people. You're like, oh, well, we, I didn't do it. You know, we didn't do it. No, you colluded with your oppressors to pull this off. The Romans were afraid of this man. And you had him killed. But I'm here to tell you today that he is alive because he was raised by God. And we are witnesses. Peter goes on to say, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. He's like quoting Jesus. G I Jesus, saw the Lord, God the Father, always before me. Before he, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence." There was something else that they had wrong, too. Uh, their ideas about David. Now, God had given David a promise that his descendant would eventually sit on his throne and rule the world forever from Jerusalem. And there are a couple passages where this descendant is personified as David. So some of them had the idea that, well, maybe it's David. He's going to be resurrected. You know, there's, there's a kind of a confusion among the people. Some were looking for David to be resurrected and come back as a Messiah, and some were looking for his descendant. Peter clarifies. He says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. It was there in the city. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter throws it down, the gauntlet. You had it wrong about Jesus. And if you felt he was just a great teacher or a prophet, you're wrong. God raised him from the dead, and he is seated at God's right hand awaiting for his return. And God has made this man both Lord and Messiah of the world. Messiah was the expected one, the one... Um, who would become a descendant of David. The coming king. To fix the world and to rule the world for God. This Jesus is that man. And Peter just about wrapped it up there. He didn't give an uh, an altar call. He didn't give an invitation. He just gave an accusation. And left the people with that. You guys, you got it all wrong. You've got this event wrong. You've got the whole story about Jesus wrong. You're wrong about who the Messiah is going to be. It's wrong. You got it wrong. And I want to tell you something. It is Jesus. And he is the one who poured out this miraculous event. He's sitting at the right hand of God right now. And he's awaiting his return. So that's that. And that's how Peter presents the first Christian message. Oh, wait a minute, I've skipped something. While he is waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool to his feet, there's something else that Joel mentioned. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. They'll have dreams and visions, and they'll prophesy. <clears throat> and Joel, this Old Testament prophet, also said, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Will be saved. Exactly four years ago, minus one week, I was standing on a lady's porch making a delivery, and I heard a tremendous explosion. And uh, people in the neighborhood came out on the porches and opened doors to look and see what happened. And uh, we looked up in the distance, and we saw this white cloud puffing up, billows of smoke, and uh, it almost looked like a small mushroom cloud because it had the big head that's a characteristic of explosions, and we were wondering what in the world is this? You, know, you think, was it an accident? Is this a, a terrorist attack? What could this possibly be? And it looked like it was nearby, it looked like it was maybe two miles away, I was in the city at the time, and it turned out to be about eight or nine miles away, and it was a train had collided with a truck in Rosedale and crashed and derailed the train and like 15 cars flipped off the track and some of them were carrying hazardous materials and one of them exploded. It was a horrendous explosion and I heard it eight miles away. And it was on the news for days. And it turned out the the guy had crossed the track in a dump truck and uh, was playing with his phone. That's what caused it. Um, Billows of smoke. It gets your attention. I remember a year and a half later, I'm outside walking around, and I smell something terrible. It's like acrid. Uh, it's, what is this smell? I'm looking around and, and it almost looks like the, the sky is dimmer. And uh, it was, I could see in the distance, uh, big black clouds of smoke, uh, not defined, but diffusing through the whole neighborhood. And uh, what had happened was the Rosedale Roofing Company caught on fire. <laughs> All roofing material is flammable, shingles are made out with tar and asphalt and uh, the adhesives and all the chemicals for cleaning and sticking things down it's all very uh, flammable and it's also uh, it's like burning rubber it's very acrid terrible smell and uh, there's no missing it it could definitely call your attention when we see a fire when we hear an explosion it catches our attention. We want to know what is going on. It's, it's, it's instinctual. Am I in danger? What what do I do? Now, Peter, before the Spirit came, about two weeks before this, so he, they're meeting with Jesus in the upper room. And they're, they're dumbfounded that he is alive. And, uh, to make the point, he says, uh, do, you, do you have anything here to eat? And so he's eating with them and demonstrating to them that it is he himself. And so, okay, all right, this is, all right, this is too shocking. But so so now what, Jesus, what's next? I mean, are, we, are you going to walk around with us some more and train us some more? Or or what? what is going to happen? Is now the time you're going to... Restore the kingdom to Israel? That was the question. So we didn't see this crucifixion coming. We didn't see your resurrection coming. But now that you did that, what's next? Is it now you've got all the power? So surely now's the time you will be coronated in Jerusalem and rid ourselves of these Romans. And uh, God will set us free once again. Please tell us that This is the time now, right? Right. We finally—I think—we finally got something right. This is the time, right? Jesus says, "It's not for you to know that the times and the seasons which the Father has set, they are set. But you don't need to focus on that right now. I have a job for you. You will be my witnesses, witnesses to my resurrection." to the world. And you're going to start here in Jerusalem and Judea and go to Samaria and to the remotest parts of the world. That is your job. So here we are about two weeks, three weeks later. The Spirit has come and Peter throws down the trump card of them all. Blood and fire And billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh, come on, Peter, you're going to go there? I mean, your first words, the first paragraph, he's going apocalyptic. <clears throat> I mean, these people are already shook up. They're seeing, uh, they're hearing the, the languages spoken in, in, in their native tongue. They're seeing this pyrotechnic show on, dancing on these people's head. They hear the the great wind. These people, it's got their attention. Something is happening here, and here's a man explaining to us what it is. Well, if he quoted to me that this is the fulfillment of the spirit, and the day of the Lord is coming, he'd have my attention. And uh, this, now, they did not understand the, the great time gap. They didn't know that they had a mission. But this is where it ends. It starts now. God is filling us. And this is where it ends. The return of the Lord. Now, you don't have to just, just be Pentecostal to believe in the Spirit. The Spirit's for everybody. And you don't have to just be a flaming fundamentalist to believe in the coming of the Lord. It's a central teaching in the Bible. And Peter calls it to their attention. <clears throat> now, we can understand uh, things differently. You know, these are backward people. You know, they didn't know as much as we do. You know, they're easily persuaded. Maybe that's how they got the church going, you know. <clears throat> Blood and fire and billows of smoke. I don't like talking about this. But this is my assigned text for today. And we have seen it in our day. We have seen it before our day. A hundred years ago, the entire world was caught up in an epic struggle. They call it the World War. The World War. The Great War. I got all these videos, I haven't watched one of them yet. I think I'll watch one of these. I don't have much time, but they're on my list the Great War, the war to end all wars, 100 years ago. 30 years later, we had World War II. That war did not end the wars. World War II. See, up until this time, uh, the church was making great progress throughout the world, and a lot of people thought, well, the church is going to usher in the millennial kingdom, you know, that It's just going to get better and better and better and better. And God's kingdom will be here on earth because of the great reach of the church. Well, that had a pretty big ding after World War I. After World War II, that idea was scrapped because the world is not getting better. And uh, World War II was finally ended on VJ Day, the victory over Japan Day, which happened a couple of days after the dropping of the first atomic bombs. Those are are billows of smoke and fire. And it was a tough decision for those that that, made that decision, it was not tough. Because in the works was uh, a war plan to invade Japan. It had to be massive and overwhelming because uh, the Japanese stance to fight to the last man. There was no surrender. And they had ample evidence of that uh, in the war at uh, Okinawa. They had the kamikazes. And the uh, Allies had never come up against uh, an army like this before, where people would throw their lives away, where they win or lose—it doesn't matter—we're fighting to the bitter end. How do you deal with that? And the war plans called for massive invasions of the of the islands of Japan, and they anticipated anywhere from a million to up to 4 million casualties on the Allied side, mostly Americans, and uh, up to 5 to 10 million casualties among the Japanese. Now, the the bombs were horrific. The bomb at uh, Hiroshima, between the impact and those who died shortly thereafter from all the associated radiation sickness, claimed about 146,000. The bomb at Nagasaki, about 80,000. I'm not dreaming this stuff up. We don't talk about stuff like this in church a lot. It's unpleasant. But I don't have to dream up scenarios for us to worry about. In fact, we do a pretty good job of eradicating thoughts like this from our mind. We keep ourselves entertained and occupied with everything else but big issues. However, before the bombs were dropped, you may not know this, (coughs) but there were lots of uh, bombing runs, both in Europe and in Japan, and oftentimes uh, the Allies would drop leaflets before bombing raids to warn the people. And I'll read you uh, two samples. This is one that was uh, dropped before the bomb at Hiroshima. It was written in Japanese. Read this carefully as it may save your life or the life of a friend or relative. In the next few days, some or all of the cities named on the reverse side of this note will be destroyed by American bombs. These cities contain military installations and workshops or factories which produce military goods. We are determined to destroy all the tools of the military clique which they are using to prolong this useless war. But unfortunately, bombs have no eyes. So in accordance with with America's Humanitarian policies, the American Air Force, which does not wish to injure innocent people, now gives you warning to evacuate the cities and save your lives. America is not fighting the Japanese people, but is fighting the military clique, which has enslaved the Japanese people. The peace which America will bring will free the people from the oppression of the military clique and mean the emergence of a new and better Japan. You can restore peace by demanding new and good leaders who will end the war. We cannot promise that only these cities will be among those attacked, but some or all of them will be. So heed this warning and evacuate these cities immediately. The warning went out. Immediately after the bomb in Hiroshima was dropped. <coughs> they sent out other uh, leaflets dropped from the bombers. This one says this. To the Japanese people, America asks that you take immediate heed of what we say on this leaflet. We are in possession of the most destructive explosive ever devised by man. A single one of our newly developed atomic bombs is actually equivalent in explosive power to what 2,000 of our giant B twenty nine planes can carry on a single mission. This awful fact is one for you to ponder, and we solemnly assure you of its grim that it is grimly accurate. We have just begun to use this weapon against your homeland. If you still have any doubt, make inquiry as to what happened to Hiroshima when just one atomic bomb fell on that city. Before using this bomb to destroy every resource of the military by which they are prolonging this useless war, we ask that you now petition the emperor to end the war. Our president has outlined for you the 13 consequences of an honorable surrender. We urge that you accept these consequences and begin the work of building a new, better, and peace-loving Japan. You should take steps now to cease military resistance. Otherwise, we shall resolutely employ this bomb and all our other superior weapons to promptly and forcefully end the war. Evacuate your cities. Now, I have to ask you are the Americans more compassionate than God? These people were informed by a Christian worldview. But still, are we more compassionate toward our enemies than God? I don't think so. God has sent his warning time and again throughout all of our history. We're his enemies. The world... uh, outside of God, is opposed to God. And it breaks God's heart. He has employed every possible method to reach out to mankind. And not to compare, but to contrast God's ways with man. People dropped a horrific bomb which brought great devastation, uh, in order to save more people. God sent his son to save his enemies. If I was not a Christian, I would be terrified by this world and the world situation. I was uh, researching, you know, there are are approximately 14,900 nuclear weapons in the world. Ninety-three percent are in uh, Russian and American hands. And there are others who want to make them desperately. Crazy people. People guided by truly apocalyptic visions. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. I don't know if that's what this refers to. I wouldn't be surprised. i rather think it is. If it's not, it's just as bad. If you look in the other prophecies of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it describes some of those events. But is this God's doing? If you look at it, most of them are man-caused. It's been 70 years, 72 years, since uh, the atomic bombs were detonated. There are almost 15,000 now. Has man finally gotten it together? Have we figured it out? How to live at peace with one another in our world? How is it that these have not been used since then? I think there's only one explanation. It's God's restraining grace on this world. And one day, the the patience, the time will be up. God's not going to do a sin. He's going to release mankind against himself. He doesn't really have to do much. If he pulls back his grace, it's a sad picture. Now, how is it that these people, on the first day of the church of Pentecost, uh, many turned to God? They had never seen anything like what we have seen. And yet the world today lives in the shadow of terror And we can imagine total destruction. And yet many people just blithely live their lives in denial and avoidance of things like that. We live in avoidance of our own demise. Everybody dies, we all know that. But how many people live their life as as if they're going to die and stand before God one day? The majority don't. That's terrifying. It's appalling. And if each person has to face a death day, mankind faces a demise. Peter throws down the trump card on the first day the church is born. God doesn't want that, He wants to pour out His Spirit to make a new world. That's what he is up to. But just like in the epic struggle of World War II, all all hostilities have to cease. The Allies had to to win to build a better world, a new and peace-loving Japan. That was the consequence of ending the war. Surrender. Don't fight to the bitter end. We can make this better. Surrender. And let's, let's have a new start. Let's have a new life. This is what God calls to mankind. Surrender. Do you think I want destruction? Do you think I want the bad if I, if I blink, if I turn my, my head away for one second, you'll do it to yourselves, and that's what's, what's recorded is coming. This is not what God wants, but it will happen before the new world comes, before He restores the world. If I didn't believe this, I would live in terror. Or in denial. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. After Peter preached, it says, in my last verse, it says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what? Shall we do? What shall we do? Well, the next text tells what what the prescription is, but that's next week's assignment. That's not mine. You can read the next word and see what it says. And next week, Ed is going to talk about repentance what that is, what that means and how we do it. But the promise is here. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. (coughs) So this is my appeal. Don't mistake what the Spirit is doing in our world. God's Spirit in the world, doing God's work, means that God is here working with mankind for his redemption. Don't mistake who Jesus Christ is. He is the pivotal figure of all history. And how we relate to him determines our destiny. And do not mistake where history is headed. It has a glorious conclusion, but it gets ugly before then. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, what a gracious God you are. You treat us with dignity and respect, even though